Today's reading is from Luke 22, verses 1 to 30, and you'll find it on page 881 in your Bibles, in the Church Bibles. The Plot to Kill Jesus. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may, we may eat it. They said to him, where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. Thank you very much um, to Pat and to uh, others who have led and taken part uh, this morning. Now let's pray as we come to God's Word together. Our Father, we pray that what we study together in your Word now would uh, very powerfully cohere with all that we have heard and thought of in the rest of our time together. Help us to really listen. There are very important truths here, truths that encourage, challenge, galvanize, quicken, and warm our hearts. And so we pray that we will all be found at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And all this we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now please have the Bible passage open in front of you, uh, Luke chapter 22, and uh, also you'll see on the back of the service sheet uh, some uh, notes. Um, four Ps, and just let me say that I am not a man for alliteration. This is the first time in about 20 years that I've used uh, alliteration. Um, you may remember Andy Robertson when he was here. Uh, he loved alliteration and still does, so maybe it's a, a testament to him. Four Ps. Something must be wrong because there aren't three. Okay, let's just dive in, and there's some great stuff here and important stuff to learn. Now, firstly, the context. The setting is the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we may well be familiar with the Passover. The Passover, recalling the events of the exodus from Egypt, when because of the blood on the lintels and the doorposts on the people of God's homes, the angel of death passed over them. And uh, that's what enabled God's people to leave uh, Egypt. And Jesus fulfills the Passover uh, in a wonderful and a new way, as we will see. But we may not be so familiar with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, Passover began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were rolled into one Passover meal, happened on evening, day one. And that was followed by seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the significance of unleavened bread? Well, if you go back and read the events of the Exodus, the people of God left so hastily from Egypt that they were unable to put yeast in or leaven in their bread, and so it was flatbread. Do you want to know where flatbread comes from? There you go. And so that was a reminder to them of how God had led them out of Egypt. But there's something else. The Lord Jesus teaches in the New Testament, teaches in the Gospels, and he uses leaven or yeast as symbolic of sin, of the pervasive effects of sin. And so the coincidence of the Passover and unleavened bread was meant to uh, communicate through all of the days of the feast that one day God's Messiah would come to deal with sin. And that would be the means of the ultimate rescue and uh, exodus. That's the context. This is the Passover day one. Now, first P, uh, purpose. There are two purposes at play here. Look at the column on the left, first of all. Verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. 
Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was uh, of the number of the twelve. Uh, the chief priests and the scribes and Judas are anti-Christ, opposed to Christ, opposed to his saving work, opposed to his Messiahship, opposed to his identity, his lordship. And I want to use the word antichrist because it's the word the New Testament uses for those who are against Christ and his gospel. And if you are shocked to think that that might include religious leaders, it does and it can. And we saw that in the previous section in Luke's uh, gospel where Jesus uh, warned the people of the religious leaders of the day and pronounced that they will receive the greater condemnation. The chief priests, the scribes, and Judas, and uh, behind it all is uh, Satan. It's very stark. And of course, behind anyone who is anti-Christ the prince of this world, Satan, is in their heart. Now, what is their purpose, the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas? It is to kill Jesus. We see it plain as day in the text. Their purpose is evil. Antichrist is evil. Moreover, their their, their work or their purpose is what I refer to as opportunistic. You get a sense of that from the text. Uh, they kind of meet, and there's a meeting of minds. Judas wants to betray him. They offer him money. He wants money. And so everything is, is, is sorted, so they consented and sought an opportunity to betray him. So that purpose is going on the night before Jesus' death. The chief priest, the scribes, Judas, Satan in their hearts, intend to kill Jesus. Their purpose is evil and opportunistic. Now, on the other side, at the same time, there is God. God's purpose is the death of Jesus. God's purpose is entirely good, for it will bring salvation to humanity. Moreover, God's purpose is not in any way opportunistic. It is planned, it is ordained, it is set down, it is purposed. Now, I put in brackets there on the sheet, it must uh, happen. Just look at verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now, in that... English translation, there is a little Greek word, D-E-I. It means it must happen. And that word D-E-I is a word that runs all the way through Luke's gospel and all the way through Acts of the Apostles. God's purposes must happen. They are ordained. They are set by God. And it's very important that we don't ever think that God looks at a situation and makes the best of it. It's planned. 
God's purpose was that Jesus would go to the cross and die. Now, put these two purposes side by side, and they are running side by side. They are running in parallel like train tracks, and they coincide on the cross, which is the pivot moment in all of human history. At this most significant moment in all of human history, these two purposes collide, coincide, and God's purpose prevails. Good prevails over evil. God prevails over Satan. And those who stand with Satan, Antichrist. God raised Jesus from the dead, his death effective as the means of salvation. And uh, God's purposes planned, it must happen. God's purposes even intersect and invade the opportunism of humanity that seeks to oppose uh, Christ. Now, this is a very striking principle and a very important principle. I want to apply it, first of all, at its essential, simple level, which I think is really important that we grasp this, and then acknowledge that it works itself out in the world and in our lives in ways that are not simple. Here is the simple principle. At this pivotal moment in human history, from which every moment precedes and follows, God triumphed over evil. And since then, and until Jesus returns again, the purposes of God to build his kingdom on the earth are unstoppable and determined, and it will lead in the end to Christ returning and a new creation, the kingdom of God in its fullness, and all there will be are Christian people through the centuries gathered with Jesus in a new creation. That is purposed. It is inevitable, and it's working itself in the world even as we speak and listen here. How does that apply globally? God is sovereign over the globe. God is sovereign over the nations. Nationally, think of some of the mighty nations in East Asia. When you hear people speak about the work of the gospel in these mighty nations, it is always opposed. But never, ever for a minute when you hear of this, do you ever, ever think that it's going to die? It's rampant. It's alive. It's unstoppable. And ultimately, all there will be left of these great nations in East Asia are those who have turned to Jesus Christ, living in the new creation with the Son of Man, Jesus. Now, in our own country, these are hard times. This past week, as many of you will have been aware, big church institutions in our country took more and more steps away from the gospel and the Bible. 
It is sad. It is alarming. But the church, the true living church of Christ, will never die. Never die. And personally, locally in a church, We go back in a few months' time to a building up the road after eight years or so on the road. Lots of people, by God's grace, trained and a church planted and people sent out. In some ways, confounding our expectations humanly. But that's what God does. He builds His church. Perhaps the greatest risk we face as a church is when we're up there sitting in that nice building and we think in some way we have uh, arrived. I pray that God will stir us up and put many challenges before us in the years that lie ahead. Applying this personally, one of the most precious texts to me in the New Testament is 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9 that God is preparing a place for us. That's in the new creation. That place is kept for us. And then Peter says, you are being kept for it. God will get us through life to his new creation if we believe in Jesus. And so this principle of good over evil, God's purpose is coming to fruition in the world, ultimately in the new creation, can be applied globally and nationally and locally and personally. But now let me say this never, ever, ever simplistically. Now, when you sit and look out in a service, as we did at half past nine, and see a number of people here from Ukraine, you've got to face that and wrestle with that and ask, what is God doing But you rest ultimately in the truth that because good defeated evil at the cross, one day the Lord Jesus will return and all justice will be meted out. Now the coincidence at the cross of Christ in that central event in human history where God met Satan and good conquered evil one and at the same time in the outworking of God's purposes on the earth, it doesn't work like that all the time. It looks like evil is prevailing for a time or a generation on a part of the world. And then history shows you that then God moves and God's purposes prevail. And personally, in our own lives, it is never simplistic. And we are foolish to pretend that it is but we hold on to and trust in the principle that God has defeated Satan, that good has conquered evil, and the inevitable progress of human history is spiraling to the day when the Lord Jesus will return as king and judge, and there will be a new creation, and you and I will be there or we will not be there based on whether we have trusted in Jesus. And so the most important question, you see it there on the sheet, 
It is a stark question, but the gospel is stark and wonderfully so and clear. And in our world of spin and sound bites and And you may have heard of theologies like mixed economies or constrained differences, whatever these things are. None of these are in the Bible. The most important question to all of humanity, are you antichrist or for Christ? That's how the New Testament puts it. Are you for him or against him? There is no middle ground, no neutral ground, no no man's land in the end. Are you antichrist? or for Christ? Now, notice that is a very different question from are you anti the church or for the church? Never base a decision of salvation on the church's failures. Base your decision for salvation and eternity on Jesus Christ and Him alone. How do you know if someone is antichrist or for Christ. Well, the great issue of the day in the West, at least, is whether or not someone submits to and lives according to the Word of God. Just glance back to the very end of chapter 21. It's a wonderful end, the very end of chapter 21, a passage, chapter 21, all about the return of the Son of Man and the destruction of the temple, the return of the Son of Man, uh, the second event, the destruction of the temple, the first. When Jesus comes again, there will be a judgment. And how do we live until that time? Every day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, chapter 21, verse 37, that night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And whether you are in the eastern part of the world or the western part of the world, uh, in our time and in our day, the most important thing is to stick to the Word of God and to keep coming back to Jesus and listening to His Word. If we do not follow His Word, we will be cast in a thousand directions, tossed on the sea, consumed by the culture, consumed by the times. Stick to the Word of God. Now, secondly... P for Passover. Now, uh, Passover may be familiar to us. Uh, At the time of the Exodus, uh, the event that led God's people out of their captivity and slavery in Egypt was the Passover. The angel of death passed through the land of Egypt, and it passed over the houses and the homes and the firstborn of the people of God because they had sacrificed an unblemished lamb and smeared the blood of the lamb on the lintels and the doorposts of their home. And the angel of death passed over. The people of God uh, were uh, taken out of Egypt and led to the promised land. And uh, every, every feast of unleavened bread, the first day of the feast, uh, Jews would gather as Jesus gathered with his disciples and they, they ate bread and they drank wine in memory of these events. And then that one night, that one night, Jesus said these remarkable, remarkable things. This is my body, which is broken for you. And you can imagine in the room all the eyes of the disciples looking up as Jesus rested them out of their familiarity. And then he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus 
self-identifies as the Passover lamb. His body slain, his blood shed as the Passover lamb on the cross of Calvary means that for those who look to Jesus for their salvation, the wrath of God, the angel of eternal judgment and death, passes over them and pours its wrath out on the Son of God. Now, it's really important that we understand that at the heart of Christian faith, there is a Passover. You and I will all stand before the Son of Man on Judgment Day, and He will look at us, and we will look at Him. He will look in our eyes, and we will look in His eyes, and He will declare us to be righteous or unrighteous, depending on our trust or otherwise in Jesus Christ. And if we have not trusted in Jesus for our salvation, the wrath of God will come upon us in fury for eternal hell. That's exactly what Jesus says. But if we have, then Jesus will say to us, the wrath of God passed over you when my son died on his cross and bore your sin and bore my wrath. That is the very heart of the Christian gospel. And there is no other gospel. We are antichrist or we are for Christ. We divide as humanity between those who have looked to Jesus for their salvation and the wrath of God has passed over them and those who have not and the wrath of God will come upon them. And then thirdly, pattern, verses 24 to 27, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And these are striking and radical, radical words. Remember, Jesus is addressing his apostles, the leaders of the early church. Jesus, who is the great benefactor to humanity, says, I am a servant of you. The apostles, who are the great benefactors to the church, they give us the apostles' word. They are benefactors to us. Jesus says, no, you're not. You are servants. And every Christian leader who has engaged in the extension of Christ's kingdom on the earth ever since, many of whom we laud and thank God for as great benefactors of the church, Jesus says, no, you are servants. We are all servants of the one true and living God. The Son of Man is a servant. The apostles are servants. All Christian leaders are all Christians are servants, and the posture of a servant is bowing down before the Lord. The posture of a servant is to give up all that they want, all that they aspire to, and serve a greater cause than their own. And that is the extension of Christ's kingdom on the earth. And if you are a Christian, and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
there will be going on in your heart at the moment. Maybe a struggle, but there will be a bit of your heart, a bit of the Holy Spirit that indwells you, fighting for the affections of love that you have for Jesus, that you want to give your life in service. You don't want to do anything else. It's what Thomas Chalmers, after whom we have taken our name as a church, called the expulsive power of the new affections. Your affections for Christ are stronger than your affections for worldly things. And so there wells up in your heart, and there wells up in my heart now, a desire to be your servant and to keep on being your servant here until my breath goes. That's the desire that will make the family that we heard from want to go back to where God has called them to be a servant, to be a servant, to be a servant. And in the days in which we live in the wider church, one of the great dangers when the church is, is kind of looking for vision and strategy and renewal and energy again is that all sorts of leaders pop up and Jesus says, yes, yes, I might be a servant. Be a servant. Be a servant. Don't serve yourself. Serve God. And to be a servant as you flip the coin means to suffer with Christ. But what does it mean in the end? Verses 28 to 30 promise what beautiful words they are. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus is speaking here directly to the apostles. He says, uh, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. I think he's differentiating the eleven from Judas, but he is also talking about what we will read in the book of Acts, that these eleven and the apostle Paul stayed with Jesus. They stuck to him, they stuck to his word, and they proclaimed his gospel, and to them, the Father has assigned a kingdom. That's the new creation when he comes again. And to every Christian leader, to every Christian who has stayed with Christ in his trials, who has held a fidelity to his word, there is a place in the kingdom of God Just glance back to verses 15 and 16 and verse 18. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's striking text. Surely the Passover meal is fulfilled in the cross. Surely the Passover meal is fulfilled when we gather around the Lord's table regularly as a church. No, it's not. The Passover meal is finally and fully fulfilled when the great commission of the Lord Jesus is complete and people from every tribe, nation, and language from Ukraine, Australia, China, Scotland gather around the table of the King. And I think this text is suggesting that when that day comes and we gather around the table of the King, we will eat bread and wine. We will celebrate the Passover in its final and full form. 
It's why when we gather around the Lord's table and remember his death, our liturgy rightly says to us, every time you do this, you remember my death and proclaim my death until I come. And I look forward to that day when we gather around the heavenly banquet and we drink, we drink the wine that is the free-flowing blood no longer of the covenant's inauguration, but of the covenant's consummation in the everlasting kingdom of God. And the question that cries out from this text, as it does from every text of Scripture, is will you be there? Will you be there? Will you be there? And there is no neutral ground. There is no no man's land. You will be there or you will be in judgment. And that is the clarity of the gospel. The wrath of God has either passed over you at the cross or it will come in its fury upon you for eternity. You are either antichrist or for Christ. These are Jesus' words. And please, please, please do not dismiss them because they are sobering and challenging or because they have implications for people you love who are not Christians. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Believe in His Son. And as Christian churches and as Christian leaders, hold fast to the Word of God and follow Jesus and never, ever, ever turn away. And if God is pleased in our time and in our generation to show the fruit of that, so be it. But he may well not do that. But one day, in the new creation, you will sit at the table of the king. Forevermore. And you will look back on your threescore years and ten, or plus a bit, or less a bit, and you will think, thank God, that in his mercy and his grace, he showed me Jesus Christ as the means of my salvation. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? I always remember uh, a man called Ray, his name was, he, he wouldn't, uh, he really didn't want to meet me or see me, and the only way he agreed to do that is I visited him in his care home. We watched the snooker. And I was thinking, how on earth do I get the gospel? And I didn't. And, and, then, yet he, and then he moved, and he'd start, he'd lay on his bed, and he died, and it, it was a long, drawn-out affair. And all the time, every time I was in, he kept repeating this phrase, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And I hope and pray and trust that in these words, they spoke of his salvation at the end of his days. But don't, don't, don't base all your eternity on the possibility that that might come to your mind as you lie dying on your bed. Give your heart to Jesus now. And if you have, stick to him and his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clarity of this text in Scripture we know that it does not work itself out in any way simplistically in life, and it doesn't say that, and we're not saying that. 
with the ultimate principles of Christ's death, achieving defeat of Satan, good over evil, triumphing, and the return of the Son of Man, when all there will be is a new creation in the kingdom of God. And those who have been for Christ, seated at the table of the King, enjoying that heavenly banquet, and those who are antichrist, those for whom the wrath of God has not passed over, those who have not looked to the Son, living for an eternity in hell. Lord, wake us up, wake up our country, wake up our world, and put a new thrust and a new impetus in the proclamation of the gospel, the simple, clear gospel that Christ died for our sins. And may there be a surge of people turning to Christ while they have time. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.